You are listening to the Stand with Dignity podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم أحمده وصلي على رسوله الكريم. Welcome back to the Islamic Cities program on sacrifice and reformation. In the context of the events that took place in the first 10 days of Muharram, some 1400 years ago. This is our fifth night, and we have a distinguished guest who would be introduced by Dr. Hasnan Walfi on issues pertaining to gender equality. Why we chose this particular topic? Because we believe that uh, this is an issue that has to be looked in the context of the United States and in the context of the Muslim community and society as well. In the United States, women still make 78% cents for every dollar earned by men. In the black women earn less than 64 cents and Latinas earn less than 54 cents. Then approximately one in four homeless women are homeless. Nearly 40% of the women in different parts of the country live as homeless people. Over a thousand public K-12 schools in the United States have only single sex education program. And many still rely on, you know, anti-science and anti-gender kind of issues. And when we look at uh, issues uh, pertaining to women, we find that the, the, the issues pertaining to pregnancy and parenting discriminations are quite uh, prevalent. Violence against women is prevalent. Women's right in the workplace uh, is, is a major issue. Women's rights in education is a major issue. Women's, uh, uh, you know, and criminal justice is a major issue. Women's presence in the, in the politics is a major issue. All these are issues. And when we look at our own community, we find a, a very uh, strange phenomenon. That even though, you know, the institutions of, of our religion, such as Islamic centers and mosques uh, uh, are open for everyone, But there is not a single mosque in the United States that offers equal space to Muslim women to come and pray and offer their services and their allegiance to God. It's, it's a very strange uh, kind of thing that uh, a faith that uh, focuses on uh, women's rights and uh, you know very clearly says as we read in 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 surah azab in al muslimina wal muslimat wal mu'minina wal mu'minat wal qanitina wal qanitat was sadiqina was sadiqat was sabirina was sabirat wal khashiina wal khashiyat wat mutasaddiqina wal mutasaddiqat was saimina was saimat wal hafizina furujahum wal hafizat was zakirina allah kasiran wa zakirat adallahu lahum maghfiratan wa ajran azima And I would loosely translate it as that men have the capacity to submit themselves to God, so women. And if they, men can express uh, faith in God, so can women. And so on and so forth, 10 categories. And yet, that discrimination is there. 
And that inequality and disparity is there. It's not there just in, in this century. It has been there for the last several hundred years. And uh, they have to prove that they are equals in the eyes of God, even though we say whatever we want to say, but the reality is that within the Muslim community and the Muslim society, they are still not given the full rights that God has given them. And it is in this particular context we want to raise up this issue because it requires reformation in the community. Because we, it requires sacrifices on the part of both genders to create a new idiom, a new language of equality in the context of the Quranic message. So I would not take much of uh, uh, the, the discussion part. I'll hand it over to Dr. Astan Walji to proceed further, introduce the speaker, and then uh, you know give his present perspective, and then we will ask the, the speaker to, to move forward. Thank you, uh, Dr. Ashram. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah ar-Rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala ashrafi al-anbiya'i wal-mursaleen. Sayyidina wa nabiyina Abu al-Qasimi Muhammad. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. We welcome all our viewers to this conversations on Muharram is a time for sacrifice and reformation. Uh, as we have been discussing that this series is to explore contemporary significance of social justice movement as initiated by the grandson of the Blessed Prophet, peace be upon him, as he stood up to the tyranny of the time. We've been focusing on two concepts of sacrifice and reformation, exemplified by Imam Hussain in Karbala when he sacrificed 72 of his companions. Yesterday, we looked at the issue of homelessness and ended on a note that besides assisting the homeless directly and indirectly, we must also stand up to the very politics that created the state of homelessness in America in the first place. To focus on the subject at hand, uh, and we have uh, an eminent scholar uh, with us today, Dr. Marajabin Dada to focus on the topic of gender-related disparity in America in the role of Muslim Americans. At the same time, we will also focus on some of the disparities within the Muslim society as well. And I just want to share a few words on that before we introduce the great work of the speaker that we have here today, Dr. Dana. So as women empowerment becomes a key marker of how a society has progressed, gender roles in Islam also remains and has become a frequent debate in America. In Muslim circles, oftentimes, the conversation on the role of men and women centers around one gender or what one gender should do for the other. Primarily, what is it that women should do for women? And the role of women is oftentimes centered around fulfilling the traditional gender role expectations. So this is a picture within the picture of gender disparity in America. And within that, you have the micro picture of the disparities within the Muslim societies. And without having a comprehensive understanding of the relationship between men and women in Islam, 
it can leave and has left room for oppression, misunderstanding, and one party, mainly men, not fulfilling their rights. Furthermore, with increasing discussion in the public domain about gender role expectations, which is what Dr. Dada will address, it becomes even more imperative that Muslims discuss the relationship between the genders. We can look back at the prophetic tradition and help correctly fulfill the rights of one another as elucidated uh, in the Quran, so eloquently quoted by Dr. Aslam. So historically, women in almost every society were subjugated, oppressed, and deemed inferior to men. And there was very little room for women in the public sphere, and their role was often reduced to serving men. There are rights, responsibilities, and roles that both men and women have in relation to each other, according to our faith. And in speaking about those relationships between men and women, Allah frames the genders as partners rather than rivals. The believing men and believing women are allies of one another, the Quran says. So both sexes are responsible for establishing a healthy family, a just society. And this is what reformation is all about. Both are equally rewarded for the good that do, that they do as we heard. So some, especially in the West, are supporting an agenda that there should be no great gender distinctions and that gender roles should cease to exist because these roles are socially constructed. Then there is another school of thought that believes that gender roles in themselves are not the issue. The issue is when people in a relationship or in communities stick rigidly to gender roles without allowing for room to determine their own roles for themselves. And while gender roles may serve as a framework of how men and women may interact, only when it becomes a tool of oppression that it becomes an issue. American Muslim women today are struggling to address the stereotypes and misconceptions associated with the role of women in Islam as part of the wider society. Today, Muslim women occupy a wide variety of positions in American life. Medical doctors, engineers, lawyers, chemists, housewives, broadcast journalists, professors, clerical workers, and so on and so forth, businesswomen, school teachers. And the number of Muslim women leaders on the American stage has increased in the recent years, perhaps not at the level that we would like to see, but it certainly is increasing and it seems that it's on a positive trajectory. More American Muslim women are asserting themselves as board members of Islamic organizations, participants in interfaith organizations, as well as scholars and writers. Many American Muslim women have begun writing their own alternative discourse. And Dr. Dala happens to be one of those who has written significantly on this discourse, and we hope that she'll be able to share her experiences, her lived experiences, as well as her writings uh, in brief with us today. Of course, now the internet is one powerful forum where women can express themselves and engage with others with blogs, publishing, academic, and opinion articles. They're also recording their stories in fiction, in books, through writing these Muslim women aim to express their own experiences, which are separate from the male religious leaders of their own communities, as well as from the American mainstream media's portrayal of them.
Therefore, we know that in 7th century Arabia, the Quran extended to women the right of property ownership, financial independence, and so on and so forth. So to focus on the context of our discussion so far, on the key concept of sacrifice and reformation, history shows that when called upon, both genders have played their part. Indeed, as opined by Dr. Astor a few nights ago and today, that seeking to reform a society without equal and active participation of women would be tantamount to trying to walk with one foot or lift a load with one hand. If not impossible, it certainly would be and is a wobbly path as we try to hobble on one leg. Karbala happens to be a prime example of sacrifice of men and the role of women in carrying the aspiration of that reform forward as we will be discussing today. And to do that, we have a formidable academic, Dr. Major Bindala, to shed light on the topic of gender-related disparity in America and the role of Muslim Americans. It's my pleasure to introduce her as the Assistant Professor of Islamic Studies and Director of the Madrasa Midrasha Program at the Graduate Theological Union at Berkeley. This theological union brings together scholars of world's diverse religions and wisdom, traditions to advance new knowledge, share aspirations, inspiration, and collaborate on some of the solutions. And we hope that we will benefit you know, from her experiences and her writings. Her PhD dissertation was on the Sermon of Fatima, Retrieving the Female Scholar Activist Voice Amidst Patriarchal, Secular, and Sectarian Biases. With that, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Dala, who was awarded a prestigious Newell Fellowship to co-teach the Women's Studies in Religious Seminars, becoming a member of the first interreligious team to lead the course. So with that said, please, Dr. Dala, the floor is yours. Uh, Salam alaikum, everyone, and thank you so much for that generous and very kind introduction, uh, Dr. Walji and uh, Dr. Abdullah. A'udhu billahi minash shaitan ar-rajim, bismillahir rahmanir rahim Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa bihi nasta'een, wa huwa khayru nasirin wa mu'een. Thumma salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ahl baytihi al-tayyibin al-tahirin. Um, I am very uh, honored and grateful to be in your presence today and to participate in this series of very uh, pertinent and much needed conversations that have been hosted by the Islamic City. Uh, thank you for having me and I hope that we can have a, a great uh, reformative conversation in the next hour. Um, so um, thank you for that introduction. And yes, most of my work is uh, at the intersection of Islamic theology and women's studies, and I've had this honor and this privilege of being a community leader and a spiritual guide for the last 20 years. And, and that part of my life has taken me across the globe to different communities. And I've had this unique opportunity to learn with and from strong women and, and share their narratives of trials and triumphs and tenacities. So I'm, um, I'm going to draw very much on these two spheres that uh, I navigate in my academic work. And of course, my lived experiences of uh, having the privilege of being among these communities nation, nationwide and globally. 
So when we talk about gender disparity, um, that word itself is pretty loaded and and there are many different ways in which people look at it. So uh, there's always that part of where did this disparity arise? Usually, typically, it will start with most religions and most cultures in the world have subjugated women. And uh, from there, at least as Muslims or practitioners or confessional Muslims, we try to iterate that uh, Islam was something different. It came to reform uh, the society. It came to establish social justice and gender justice. And these beautiful verses that uh, both our uh, presenters have alluded to uh, are proof to how the Quran speaks about gender equality. Uh, but of course, there are many other things that that also come, you know, uh, in the prospect and that um, never ending struggle of, of having to choose sides and to think is is Islam the religion of egalitarianism and of justice or will Muslim women need to be rescued and saved by a secular notion or, 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 or a foreign intervention uh, that will protect them and give them their place. And that's a dichotomous relationship and a conversation that uh, happens in universities, it happens in women's studies and religion research. And, and I think there's this constant um, discussion al along the lines of faith and feminism and, and where does the true emancipation of the womankind lie. Um, I want to start off just by talking uh, from a perspective of the Quran and, and see really where um, where can we iterate that this book of God that Muslims believe to be the word of God is actually a book that subscribes to justice and equality of each and every kind. Um, there are about three aspects. I wrote about this in my master's thesis and uh, um, I've presented it at the AAR and, and other places in the country uh, where, I, where I look at three aspects of how Quran talks about what we can say is a foundational discussion about the larger narrative of gender equality or gender justice. Um, and that is, of course, the first part being that God announces in the book that Every human being that he has created, he has created with that common ingredient of what is known as the fitrat Allah. Fitrat Allah allati fataran nasa alayha. Allah says everybody has been created with this, uh, this divine dust or this essence of God. The fitrah of Allah is the essence of God. And this is where it's slightly nuanced from the Genesis uh, understanding that, that human beings are created in the image of God. It's not imago die, but it's rather the essence of God. They're, they're created in the essence of God. So um, according to this ayat, women and men bear that essence of God. So essentially, they are divine because they're connected to that essence. Uh, where exactly would the disparity lie then? And um, you know, alhamdulillah, the audience and, and everybody here on the panel is, is well-versed with the Quran. And we know that the, the human composition is made of the body, the, the soul, the nafaqtufihi min ruhi, the, the, the soul that has been breathed into the humankind. And then, of course, a residual creation that, that is created out of the fusion of the body and the soul. And that is the nafs, which is the self or the ego the I-ness, the identity, the, the, the specific peculiar identity of a person. When we look into the verses of the Quran, we see that the, the ruh that, that animates every created body is, is the same original ruh. So it is, it is divine in, and it is equal in everyone. 
the same ruh that animates a woman is the same ruh that animates a, a man and everything that God has created. And that is where spiritualists uh, in, in the Islamic tradition believe that we are connected to every other creature, human or other than human, that has been created by God. And, and what binds us together is this fitra, this ruh. That, that puts us together. So there is no discrimination in the ruh. It is equal in everything that has been created. Uh, the nefs, uh, which is the self, and the self is so peculiar. It, it really is so peculiar to the person. Uh, it, it is so distinct that sometimes a person goes to their grave without really knowing who they really were. So it's that I hidden behind my face, behind my body. It's, it's beyond uh, the skin of a person. And that's their true identity, the I-ness, the self, and the ego. And that seems to be something very peculiar and distinct for everyone. Where the disparity or the difference, shall we say, lies is in, in, the, bi in the biology or the body, the physical. So gender difference would apply to the body would not apply to the soul, would not apply to the self. And that is why we see that um, God is in communication to the self. God is not in conversation with the ruh, not in conversation with the body, but in conversation with the driver of that vehicle, which is the body, and that's the nafs. And, and God holds the nafs equally responsible. So we have the fitra, that is one aspect, which binds genders together. You know? and, and then you have the other aspect, which is the aspect of um, uh, the, the creation story or the creation narrative, which is very unique when it comes to uh, the Quran, even amongst the Abrahamic traditions. So um, it is not as is supported by the Genesis theory, where the woman is created as a secondary uh, creation from the rib of the prototype or the male prototype. Uh, even though this hadith appears in some of the sahih of the, of the mainstream Muslims, uh, it, it, it cannot be proven from the verses of the Quran. The Quran does not speak about any such narrative where a woman is a subsidiary or a secondary creation uh, of man. So, it's hard to subscribe that from, from the Holy Quran. Um, in the same way, it's hard to subscribe the notion of an androgynous being, which consists of male and female, and, and the creation of human being is caused by the separation of that androgynous being. And, and hence some uh, you know, traditions thinking that male and female are incomplete without another, and they need each other to sort of complete that, that, that sense of being whole. That again is something that is not subscribed to by the Holy Quran because the Holy Quran holds a, a woman complete and independent uh, and the same for the man, a complete independent being. And no, no one gender is allowed to blame another for their actions or take credit for their actions. They're recognized as two whole, independent, complete human beings. So this is the second aspect that which is common among most traditions, even Abrahamic traditions, we find that the Quran does not support that kind of a notion of a secondary being or uh, a being that depends on the other to be complete. You know, that, that romantic notion is not subscribed to by the Quran. And then the last thing I wanna, I wanna iterate here uh, before we open up the conversation is of course, 
the entire system of virtue and vice as explained in the Quran. As we, as Muslims believe the Holy Quran to be a code of life, not just a spiritual book, not just a book of uh, historical references of past prophets uh, or a book forecasting apocalyptic occurrences, but it's also a book which is practical and it is a code of life and it is adopted as such by the Muslims in, in the world today. And, and uh, that is why it has a very elaborate system of uh, understanding virtues and vice, of um, modeling what are good virtues and uh, warning against the vice and, and the crimes. And we find that everywhere there is a distinction uh, and, and a clear notification that if the performer of a virtue, whether they are female or male, they get their reward equally. And if there is a perpetrator of a vice, regardless of whether they are female or male, the, the, the penalty is the same. There are several verses in the Quran that the, the criterion here seems to be Iman. If they did it out of their love for faith, you know, whatever they've done, uh, we will give them that pure life that they deserve. So it, it is a gender-inclusive um, verse which talks about rewarding the good deeds of everyone and specifies whether they are male or female. And, and in other places, God says, you know, Inni la amalan. I do not lose or, or the good deeds of people are not lost. You know, uh, whatever you whatever you do, nothing is lost, whether you are male or female, and God will give the reward for it. So um, just to summarize, these are the three aspects, I think, from the Holy Quran, which um, lean heavily towards a book, a system, a code uh, of law that is uh, intended to bring about gender justice and equality for all. Uh, but that is not to say that that, that is exactly coherent with what, the, what is the experience of Muslim societies, whether they be here in America or in other parts of the world. There is a lot of work to be done and a lot of disparity exists. Where does that come from? How has that contaminated our understandings uh, or, or has obstructed our um, performance of this justice in our societies? I'm hoping that we can talk about that in our conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Uh, it was a wonderful presentation and definitely raised a number of issues. If this is uh, what the understanding uh, in the light of the Quran is of the role of women and the status of women, then where did we go wrong? And why is it that we are in this kind of uh, predicament at this moment? Uh, where more than half of our population comprising women is illiterate, where, uh, you know, uh, they are marginalized in, in, in society in, in, in every sense of the term. And so, so where did we go wrong? And is there a possibility of a change in the context of the United States uh, and, and reassertion of that role? Uh, that the Quran envisages 
uh, not only for uh, the, the, the Muslim community, but for others as well. Uh, Dr. Walji, I think you're on mute. You were trying to say something. No, that's okay. Um, I was just asking uh, Dr. Aslam, he wasn't on video. So one of us is muted, one of us is invisible. So that makes it difficult for you to respond. But we're not that elusive. So please go ahead. That, that is a very quintessential question, isn't it? Where did we go wrong? And, and I think that is what drives so much of our research. It drives so much of our um, you know, ethnographic work that we do. And, and we keep asking this question. And I think it's an intergenerational question because uh, so many times the new generation has had to reinvent the wheel and go back to why, how did we get here? I mean, if we are um, adherents of a book of equality, a book of justice, a book of perfection, uh, how is it that, um, you know, we've, where did we go wrong? And, and your, your question really is, uh, you know, it, it hinges upon so many studies that are being conducted by academics and traditional scholars, you know, at the same time. Um, so I want to, I, I know I can't really answer that question, but at least to to put something in there into our conversation is, of course, uh, there is the book and then there is that understanding or that transformation that the book intended to bring about. Uh, and the book, the revelation of the book may have ended within a period of 23 years, but it was not a magic wand. It didn't come and remove everything that was uh, not desirable from a society, but what it did was it left us work in practice, work in progress. It left us with some tools that we could revive and uh, bring about, you know, with each generation. But sadly, sometimes we feel that uh, the progress made by one generation is is lost with them, and then the new generation has to start from scratch, and and then we're not able to really go ahead. We're just moving around the base. Again and again, we go around the base without really going farther in, in our discussion. So uh, for me, I really believe that according to the Surah of Juma, Surah Juma, the, the job of a prophet is fourfold. Uh, it was to teach the book. It was to inform. It was yuzekki to unform, you know, break down, the, the deconstruct what was already there. And then yu'allim al-kitab, give them the, the, the book of the knowledge of the book and hope that it transforms them into wise beings. So there was this inform, unform, reform, and transform mission. And for this to happen into a transformation, there had to be a complete participation from everyone. And we know that power is something that is so... Um, is something that is so tempting and captivating, required to make progress, and yet at the same time, the biggest hindrance to progress. So when you started off, Dr. Abdullah, by talking about the literacy rate or you know, how women need to be literate, we, all Muslims have memorized the hadith of the Prophet that, you know, atlub al-ilm, the talab al-ilm, to, uh, to educate oneself is the farida of every Muslim and Muslimah. And yet we find that uh, when we do historical and cultural studies, we find there were so many religious households, religious leaders that would prevent women from getting an education. 
There were many reasons it would take away, they would become competitors of, women, of men in their authority. And that was of course that one vulnerability that nobody wanted to let go of. And uh, it, it was really hard for women. So if, you're, if they're not given those opportunities, they're not able to uh, get that kind of education. Even in the American context today, you know, um, uh, when women are educated, I'm, I'm going to speak from a, from a Muslim society context. Um, we have so many resident scholars who are male for um, Islamic centers, Islamic Muslim Islamic centers all over the United States of America. These, these scholars are uh, hosted by their communities. They are remunerated by their communities, they are given a professional status by their communities. And even if women acquire that kind of knowledge and are able to uh, serve their communities with that kind of aptitude and education, uh, they are absolutely called to serve, but not really to lead. And even if they lead, they are not uh, given that professional place or that kind of a appointed designation where they become, um, you know, on the payroll of a center or things like that. So even with all of this, I remember I went to Calgary once for, invited for a Women's Day conversation and we were having a conversation and there was a person who stood up and she said, why aren't more women educated in these fields when we need answers? We don't feel like going to men about this and we need more women educated in this field. And I said, well, you know, you'd have to invest those many years that you would invest for a master's or a PhD in Islamic studies and traditional studies. And, and then somebody else stood up and they said, well, if they did invest those many hours and years in their research, what sort of a pay would they get when they came back to their communities? Would they get that pay? And, and of course, I had to hang my head down and say, we're, we're really very far from that. So uh, even though we have a, a tradition whose sacred text talks about gender equity, whose uh, historical tradition talks about uh, the sacrifice of both the prophet of Islam and the money of his wife and, and in the devotion of his wife Khadija, alayha, yet we find that that kind of uh, pairing or partnership is, is very rare, even in the most uh, modern democratic context that we are in in the United States. You know, one of the things that we find out in our history that one of the loudest voice protest against tyranny <clears throat> and against violence came from none other than the family of the prophet, the one who survived the tragedy of Kadu. And yet we don't see many who walked on her footsteps, challenging uh, the, the, the chauvinism that existed within the Muslim society and the discrimination that was institutionalized under the leadership of the religious authorities in connivance with the political despotism. So there must be some reasons for that. Either our theology was misinterpreted or given a different direction, or our masses were kept illiterate deliberately, primarily to promote the interest of those who are on the side of training. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, the power dynamics cannot be um, ignored, uh, even in this context of uh, the Islamophobic climate that we live in. Most of the knowledge is produced by mainstream media. 
most of the knowledge is uh, deemed authentic or deciphered as authentic or left away as not authentic. Again, all that depends on the power dynamics of the media, of, of you know, the, the, the ruling party, the people in power. And, and that is exactly what has existed even in Islamic um, you know, understanding and Islamic traditions. We've had the mainstream authority uh, that was in charge or not, e not even in charge or took up the, the task of producing knowledge, uh, the task of uh, deeming a knowledge authentic and publishing it worldwide. And of course, minorities were put aside into the margins and the knowledge of the margins was considered as hearsay, was considered as uh, uh, not authentic enough or something that was um, propounded for a minority experience. And, and that's exactly what we see today as well. So uh, what you're alluding to, and that is, of course, the stand of Zainab, alayha, the sister of Imam Hussein al-Islam. Uh, again, you see that, you know, this entire narrative of Karbala, my dissertation was on the sermon of Fatima. This happened just 10 days after the Prophet's demise. So uh, 61 AH is still 50 years after the Prophet. It's half a century after the Prophet. Uh, what I was studying for my dissertation was the sermon of uh, Fatima, alayha, and that happened 10 days, 10 days after the prophet's demise, where the daughter of the prophet had to stand before the political authority and, and challenge the understanding of theology How, at that fresh moment, just 10 days after the death of the prophet and saying, where is it in the book of God? Is it in the book of God that you get your father's inheritance and I don't get my father's inheritance? And, and she was referring to the, the caliph of the time. And this is just 10 days. So it, it's just sort of for us to gauge that if, if a community could misinterpret its own theology, its own sacred text within 10 days of the, of the demise of, of its leader, 50 years is still a long time for things to go wrong. And 1400 years past that, where we are now, we are you know, in a can of worms trying to uh, decipher or discern where what is the true interpretation, what is an interpretation that would work for equity and justice. So absolutely the way we interpret our theology, all those stories, even when we teach the Quran, uh, have, our, have our scholars taught people about uh, al-mujadila or uh, you know, the woman who argued when her husband did zihar to her. And there's a whole chapter in the Quran for it. She actually argued with the prophet. She actually prayed to God to correct this injustice. And God revealed that entire surah in, as a response to a jurisprudential problem that existed at that time, which shows, which, which speaks of the female agency in, in, or that place on the table for a jurisprudential derivation from the, uh, from the book of God. So this is happening at the time of the revelation. You have this verse that you recited of Surah Ahzab. The verse of Surah Ahzab was, uh, was revealed by the invocation of Asma bint Umais. When Asma bint Umais and Jafar al-Tayyar returned from their uh, first migration to Habash and they joined the Prophet in 6 AH uh, to, in Medina, uh, the Prophet was very happy to see them. And Asma bint Umais went to the wives of the prophets and she said, has anything been revealed about women? And they were like nothing spe specific. So she went to the prophet and she said, why is it that women have been excluded from revelation? And, and that is where this world, this, this verse is revealed, actually spelling out 
10 different characteristics in two different genders. You see the iterations one after the other, one after the other, as if God's saying, are you satisfied now? You know, you needed this to be spelled out between the two genders and here they are. And the 10 characteristics in that verse number 35 of the chapter 33, Al-Hazab, are talking about uh, points of faith. They're talking about points of uh, practice and they're talking about points of morality. Hence, binding, you know, all those three things together, the mind, the body, and the ego, uh, putting it together and putting women and men on the same platform. So absolutely, our theological understanding, especially in this topic that you're talking about, sacrifice and reformation, the story of uh, the sister of Imam Hussein, Hazrat Zainab, alayha, is, is uh, living proof of how sacrifice is as much um, the mandate of the woman as it is of the man. Uh, the, the narratives of Karbala are full of heroic uh, valor and, uh, you know, warriorship of, of the male, you know, carrying these weapons, going out very heroically into war. But I think to carry a smile with a broken heart is just as powerful. And to, to carry hope in, in a toxic environment uh, is also just as powerful. And that is what was demonstrated. That kind of sacrifice is what was demonstrated by the women in Karbala, the mothers, the, the, the sisters, uh, uh, you know, the wives of, of the companions. They, the, the men went out, did their war for, I don't know, 30 minutes, one hour. The entire uh, war lasted from the Fajr prayer to the Asr prayer of Ashura. So as many hours as each one fought, that was the end of their jihad. That was it. They, they stopped after that. Their struggles were over. We're told that they were united among the warriors uh, and, and the inmates of paradise. But the lives of the women just continued and their struggles continued till the day they died. So the sacrifice for, was for a longer period than it was for those who were the supporters of the mission of justice. And the same, the same way the Reformation, uh, if it weren't for the sermons of Zainab Salamullah, if it weren't for the mourning lamentations. In fact, the Shia culture is a lot about the lamentations as well, the eulogizing of history. And again, this has to do something with what minorities have always resorted to when the mainstream has uh, erased certain parts of their history, minorities have resorted to documenting their history in forms, in artistic forms of either paintings or eulogies or uh, poems and things like that. And the prophet's daughter did that. So when, when Fatima Salama was not allowed to mourn her father, she would eulogize it. Subbat alayya masa'ibun. Oh, oh, father, she would go to the grave of her father, the prophet of God, and say, oh, oh, father, you know, such atrocities have befallen me if that if they would have befallen on the bright days, they would have turned to dark nights. So these were those political moves of encapsulating uh, reformation through these artistic and lamenting renditions, which is which was carried forward by the women and, and children who were made captive after Ashura and then taken uh, to Damascus uh, to Yazid, they were, uh, they were hurt when they were presented. They were bound in chains. They were hurting. They were tired because they had walked for 535 miles. And uh, they were aching, yet they were hungry. They were thirsty, yet they stood there and Zainab stood there and she said, you will not obliterate our history. And, and that is something that is enacted 
each year through pilgrimages, through the what we're doing now here, you know, talking about sacrifice and reformation on this platform, through platforms of uh, visual arts, through platforms of lamentations. So very much, I think, as you have said, that our interpretation of theology, and, and again, most of these things have been theologically reprimanded that you know this art form should not exist or these poetries should not exist which which sort of pulls in theology into these kinds of understandings and reformation as well please excuse me i think i spoke more than i should have i think that was really well well articulated in in the passion let me uh, turn this um, slightly differently in terms of what can we do moving forward uh, in particular with your experience in academia because when we talk about reform and we talked about this a few days ago, that uh, the thought leadership that needs to be created within the Muslim society, perhaps the, the US may be one of the best places where we have talent from around the world. We have talent from you know, all diverse groups. We have women you know, in academia, women like you and others. What is it that we can do as a Muslim community to redress this imbalance that you have particularly been in academia because I'm so interested in saying how can we develop a level of thought leadership where these things then uh, percolate down to the leadership and the mosque and the members and so on and so forth. Um, I think there are uh, benefits and drawbacks of being uh, in academia in the United States. Uh, one obvious benefit is that we have relative freedom of speech. We can talk about things uh, that are considered taboo and very provocative in mainstream Muslim or majority Muslim countries. And, and um, we, we know that, I mean, globally throughout the world, we find that many of the majority Muslim countries are, um, are, are really you know, dictating what, what is said and what is studied and, and what is expressed. There are so many, um, taboos on what mosques you go to, what sort of a sermon you deliver on a Friday, and, and all these understandings. There are entire theological viewpoints that say that people need to be, as Muslims, subservient to their rulers. Hence, taking away that voice of uh, critiquing the leadership or holding the leadership accountable for what they're doing wrong. Uh, but that's maybe an, another topic. So maybe Yes, you are right. There is, there is a privilege of being in this part of the world where we have this, this um, you know, relatively more uh, relaxed environment where we can talk about these things that are considered to be taboo or provocative in, in Muslim majority countries. But at the same time, I'm not quite sure if we have everything that we need to initiate this kind of, or at least perpetuate this kind of research here. Because after all, we are looking at a secular formation um, of how knowledge is produced. We're looking at um, religion as something that is not considered as a place of scholastic or critical learning. Um, it's considered confessional and not academic. So this is where I think it becomes very uh, difficult for at least scholars of Islamic studies and Muslim scholars of Islamic studies to navigate that space. Because according to our faith, we think that the Quran, studies of the Quran, studies of you know, hadith are emancipating, are liberating. It's a, it's a liberation theology. Um, and, but at the same time, we, we are met with a secular standard, which tells us that to be authentic as scholars, 
we need to be critical of religion. So it, it puts us in a bit of a dichotomous situation. Uh, this is where I find uh, challenges for my own work. With the way I think, with the arguments I make, with the interpretations I draw from, uh, you know, the, from the Hadith and from the Quran, for example, one of the main arguments that I make is that uh, this, this construct that women are caregivers and men are leaders is a cultural construct and it cannot really be supported from the Quran because if, if caregiving and leadership are both virtues, I mean, who doesn't want a person who is caring and who doesn't want a person who can lead the masses? If these are both virtues, then according to the Quran, they should be equally available to women and men. So to construct a, a gender role for a woman, that this is a caregiving role, is taking away from all those narratives of the prophet who was a caregiver, you know, who played with children, who provided for the orphans, who took care of the needy, who was there uh, caring for uh, a neighbor who was a non-Muslim neighbor. When she was sick, he went to see her and, and actually cared for her. So it's taking away from the caregiving potential of, of men. And then to say that men are natural leaders is taking away from the leadership of women, at least uh, if, if it's a virtue, then it's equally distributed between women and men or easily or equally available to both. Um, so, so this is one of the arguments I made. And, and because of this argument, I'm considered, or at least sometimes I'm taken as to be pretty radical or, or disturbing for a, for a traditional status quo where, where people want to run with you know, the image of or the general construct of genders that we have. Uh, and at the same time, because of my uh, practicing visibly my faith. When I come to the feminist studies table in a secular academic situation, I'm considered too traditional or too religious. So I'm in this liminal space of, I don't really belong in that traditional um, you know, way of thinking where everybody's assigned a role and everybody just keeps performing their role and they don't want to be questioned about it. In fact, they have theological understandings that we shouldn't be questioning this. Questioning it is wrong. And uh, when I do that, I don't belong there. And when I bring that critical attitude along with my visible religiosity, uh, then I'm again, you know, discounted as for my scholarship because it seems it's not scholarly enough. And I've always argued that being in the in in Western academia, uh, we have to we have to understand, or the point has to be made, that the baseline for women's studies in Islam is different from the baseline of women's studies in Christianity. We start from a different place, not from where the secular movement started. The definition of a scholar in secular studies is someone who is not religious or is able to critique their religion and, and relies on hard physical evidence and experimentation. But when we look at Islamic studies, that science is already incorporated into our sacred text. Uh, the Holy Quran is not a sacred text that tells us do not question. It in fact says, why don't you ponder in the creation of the heavens and the earth? It, it invites to physical science. It invites to experimentation, travel in the land. So even that word scholar is understood and defined differently in Islamic studies as it is defined in the general religious studies category in the, sec in the secular uh, you know, university. So, so these are these nuances, I think, where our challenges lie. So moving forward, one thing really 
uh, is, 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 I think, would be pivotal, would be to bring these nuances to the table. That when we are studying women's experiences in Islam, they cannot be put together into the box of women's studies in religion. The baselines are different and they need to be um, recognized for that distinction and for that nuance. And at the same time, scholar activism in Islamic studies looks different than scholar activism as it is perceived by the secular academic arena. So um, that's where we are. So I think we need to sort of uh, get our definitions right, get our perspectives right, so that the right channel of research can be produced and then accepted by the larger academic community. So, uh, Dr. go ahead. Go ahead, yeah, Dr. You know, you know, it seems that uh, this secular society that we often are very critical of is more prepared and more ready to understand the concept of gender equality as we see in the Quran than the Muslim society at this particular moment. True. So why, why, why not we focus on that society in the United States? And why not we raise issues pertaining to women uh, that would enhance their status in the society in political, cultural, and in all aspects of life? And, 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 uh, and present it in a context of uh, ethic and ethics that basically maintain the dignity of you know, both the genders. Uh, perhaps we have better chances of uh, communicating the message, the divine message that we believe is uh, the, 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 the right message for, for, for humanity. Then going back to our scholarship and then going back to our societies that have totally rotten to the core to such an extent that they are not even willing to accept the morality and the centrality of the Quran itself. And allow me to add, I totally concur, Dr. Astam, and allow me to add in the question that I was going to pose, that yes, uh, it may not be perfect, but we have a, as Dr. Aslam says, we have a better chance here. And with your work, particularly the current work that you're doing with the Madrasa and the Midrasha project, are there allies that we are able to get in academia to be able to create that, that critical mass so that we're able to write these challenges? I totally understand the challenges in academia that you're uh, addressing, but perhaps it could, the one way could be to find certain allies who have similar end goals to be able to drive this agenda because it's not an easy trajectory uh, to straddle between two challenges of not being accepted in one and on the other. It's, 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 it's tough. I realize that. But there must be allies uh, that people like you and others in academia can come together and say, here is our challenge. What can we do to address it? Because I do repose a lot of faith and reliance on the Muslim academicians in Western universities who probably have a better chance than trying to make any kind of changes, you know, back uh, where the foundations of our faith are unfortunate. 
Uh, well, absolutely. You know, like I said, there are privileges of being in this part of the world and uh, being able to study and research and highlight and center those parts that are considered too provocative to be studied in, in, uh, in mostly Muslim majority countries. But at the same time, uh, to say that secularism can give us those tools is propounding or advancing uh, the same stereotype or notion that secularism or religion needs secularism to rescue it. Or, uh, you know, we need that kind of ideology or thinking or freedom to, to rescue us from uh, the misinterpretations or the misconstructions of our own religion. So I, I just want to, um, you know, put that caveat out there that, that that might, that is the majority view. I mean, especially after 9-11, uh, wars were conducted to save Muslim women from Muslim men, uh, you know, brown women. There were white-led initiatives to save brown women from their religion. So uh, without like sort of advancing that, you know, people like Irshad Manji, people like, you know, people who were ready to critique their religion were given the, the center stage, were given all these amenities, publication rights and, and all of that, um, which may be one perspective, but it, it sort of rids or, or diminishes the work of religious women and, and religious minded people in bringing reform in their societies. So it, it's a very easy thing to do. Like we're, we're in a secular environment, secularism is cool. And, and you know, it gives us the tools to do what we wanna do, let's exploit it. Okay, but uh, at the end of the day, we're also confessional people who say that the Quran has those tools. So just because we want to shy away from opening cold cases within our own tradition, can we ride the secular train and say, but these, this, this has you know, ways to, to settle it. So let's not talk about the past, look into the future and, and see what we can do. That's, that's a very easy route. But my argument is again, that this will take away, this will mute all those voices. And the voice of Karbala is a voice that was inspired by religion. It was, it was uh, a voice, a reformation that was grounded in theology and, and showing the world what theology can do to solve problems of injustice and tyranny. And it would be counterintuitive to come back and say, well, religion made this mess, so let me use secularism to sort of solve this mess that religion has made about gender injustice. So, so just with that caveat over there, I, I wanna answer that uh, question that of course there are allies. There are allies in this part of the world. And I am really very proud to be leading this uh, Madrasa Midrasha initiative, which is uh, actually an initiative that, has, that, that was at the GTU, which was advancing dialogue and discussion between the Jewish and Muslim traditions. And um, what I'm doing with it and, and, and the honor that I have to work with the beautiful team uh, that puts these things together is that we are looking at the Madrasa Midrasha program to serve as a platform for not just the Jewish and Islamic traditions, but an interreligious tradition where religious people can talk about bringing religious reform empowered by their religion, independent of uh, being rescued by secularity or being rescued by other notions that are that are critical of religion. So I'm, I'm and I've and I've been very fortunate to find people, women in the Jewish tradition, women in the Dharmic tradition, uh, women in the Christian tradition, who are uh, who who are working to articulate a religious feminist theory, a, a feminist theory which is uh, very much different from the white 
liberal, secular uh, feminist theory that was introduced in the 1960s. It, it is more based from a religious and ethics platform. So absolutely there are allies. If there's anywhere where we can do this work, we can absolutely do it here, but it's not without its challenges. And it's not without uh, maintaining our autonomy. We, we cannot take the secular model to be a prescriptive model for every reform and liberation. But one thing we, we should realize that the secularism is evolving. The secularism of the 19th century is not the secularism of this century. And the, the concept about Islam emerged in the context of those who basically had revolted against the religion based on the traditions rather than on the theology. Uh, when I say theology, I mean the text of, 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 of that theology. Uh, that there was little understanding on the part of the people that you mentioned about the theology. They interpreted it in the context of the political history of Islam and all those things. So I think there is a window of opportunity now that uh, the idea that revelation or guidance from a higher authority does impact human relationship and human society, in addition to the empirical understanding of the society, can make some 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 headway in in in, in the context of the United States. That is still that is also yearning for equality, for for better status for women, for better status for for men as well, and all those things. And it is in this particular context uh, we were wondering if. Uh, uh, those Muslims who basically theologically understand the value of e equality and equity can take up the challenge and, and come up with an understanding where Muslim Islamic centers and Muslim organizations and Muslim groups can play a leading role in the movement for gender equality in this country. Yeah, absolutely. I think just like charity begins at home, reformation also begins at home. So, um, uh, I think that reformation that we're aiming for really needs to start with a critical evaluation of how we've understood our texts and uh, those values from a higher authority that you say, you know, that you speak of, are the very values that uh, pre-existed the Enlightenment movement. So, you know, values such as justice, values such as social justice, gender justice, equity, uh, are all values, activism. These, these, are, these words may have come as late... Um, uh, admissions into the English language with the Enlightenment movement, where, where which is the beginning of secularism, uh, but but I have always argued that these exist in our uh, indigenous sacred texts as well, and we need to have an indigenous plan that will fix or or repair or reform uh, our cultures from within, rather than um, you know taking something that has worked for someone else and and putting it in. Of course, there are good good models and positive models and negative models in, in each kind of a reformation system, but um, th that's where my stand is. And of course, as many allies as we can get, uh, the better, as long as our allegiances are to the higher powers, so to speak. Thank you so much. Um, this brings us uh, to the, the end of this uh, wonderful hour. Great conversation. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, I think a lot to, to ponder upon. But as we said, this is a struggle and we have been placed in this land for a purpose. And I believe that we need to continue uh, with that struggle and kudos to you 
being part of, of that struggle and being in a place where you can make a difference. And I believe that people like you and others are making a difference in our community. With that said, I will invite uh, Dr. Ashton to say a few closing words uh, and, and a dua, please. You're muted, sir. Thank you very much. As you uh, all know that this is a joint program organized by the World Council of Muslims for Interfaith Relations, a stand with dignity and Islamicity to have this intra-faith presentation uh, uh, comprising of scholars from uh, two important sects of the Muslim community on issues that impact the Muslims in this country. Today we had with us uh, one of the uh, most, uh, uh, say, uh, rationalistic voice as far as our text is concerned, as far as our theology is concerned. And uh, we would uh, definitely like to hear more from her on these and the related issues, not necessarily only on gender-related issue, but on the overall uh, reconstruction of Muslim society and, 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 and the community and our role in, in the changing world. And inshallah, after uh, we conclude this series, we think about having more input from her in our programs. Uh, also, tomorrow we would have a discussion with uh, Professor Inamal Haq on race relations. So we hope that he would join us tomorrow. Uh, but as far as the dua is concerned, I would ask the sister to make the concluding dua, and then inshallah we will uh, close this session. Exactly. Thank you so much. Uh, and uh, can, we can you please can you please uh, make the dua, sister? Yes. Thank you very much for um, for having me at this noble platform. It's a very uh, pertinent and noble cause that you are championing over here. And it was my honor and pleasure to be uh, with you in conversation today. Uh, I ask God that he gives us um, the clarity of thought and that he embarks us on a path of wisdom. He gives us the audacity to stand for justice. He gives us the clarity to love one another as creatures of God and that he gives us the tenderness to feel pain and acknowledge pain from wherever we hear it and to work in its solidarity for all those who are hurt and ailing to bring forth a future that allows everyone's world to exist in peace and harmony. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you very much once again, Dr. Walji and Dr. Majapin. And inshallah, see you tomorrow.